Well, hey, all you wiretappers out there, good to be back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. I've got the story of the Black Mafia in Kansas City. Now, I've often been asked what connections did the Italian Mafia have with professional black criminals or African-American criminals? And there was some. And it all revolves around drugs and politics. So let's go back to some of the early days in the late 60s and early 70s. What we had in Kansas City, the heroin racket. Back in the day, blacks had heroin and Italians got the heroin in and sold it to the blacks. Go all the way back to the French Connection days in Carmine Galante in New York. Now, by the late 60s, early 70s, our local African-American guys got a connection in Los Angeles to get heroin. Now, it was seemed like it was Peckerwoods out there. It wasn't Italians. Anyhow, they got that. But they were kicking up a little bit to the Italians, and they needed to coexist with the Italians at the time. And so it's kind of started this ongoing relationship that neither party really ever acknowledged anybody, but it started coming out in little bits and pieces because I guess we really go back to the old 18th and binary. The Kansas City song, Wilbur Harrison, Kansas City, talking about being at 12th and Vine goes way back. But 18th and Vine by the late 50s and 60s was the place and it's all the black clubs and jazz clubs and everything were there. And there was a corner liquor store owned by a guy named Joe Centimano. Cokey Joe or Crazy Joe, they called him. And he was a connection with the blacks because he was in the black community. Now, he was connected primarily because of politics. There was late 60s. There formed a black political organization named Freedom Incorporated. And there were other black political, smaller black political organizations. And Joe was the mob's contact with those people. There's a guy down the street that had a liquor store called a Blue Front Liquor Store, a guy named Babyface Norris. They called him Babyface Norris. And he continued to be that for years and years, really, until he died up until, I don't know, the 80s. There was a mob guy named Jimmy Ciarelli that would show up talking to one of our capos, Willie the Rat Comisano. He was a professional thief and a fence. And he would be down at Babyface's Blue Front Liquors every day. Now, back in the day when I first came on the police department, Babyface was always good for a couple of six packs. If you're getting off of work and you wanted some beer or if we had the Central Patrol picnic because he was in Central Patrol, somebody would go buy Babyfaces and get two or three cases of beer for that. So it's kind of all part of the day in the life on the streets of a city down there. But but there was this gang called the 31st Street Gang. And there was a couple of guys that probably came out of that named Doc Dearborn and Eugene Richardson. And they got a connection and they created what really would become the first iteration or the main group that would become known as the Black Mafia in Kansas City. They had a white guy named Eddie Cox who always was like the brain. <laughs> he was the brain. He was a guy that helped him with the organization and connections. Because Eddie Cox had connections all over the United States. He was connected to the mob. He was connected through the penitentiary system to other criminal organizations throughout the entire United States because he was like a great 
prison lawyer. He is so good that he just got out on a compassionate release recently from a couple of life sentences that he had. And he helped another guy named John Mandacina get out on a compassionate release who was down for a contract murder and had a life sentence himself. So he's still operating. He's still out there. He was a dangerous man, a dangerous, dangerous man. So Eddie Cox and Eugene Richardson and Doc Dearborn formed the Black Mafia, and it was a heroin drug operation. They were providing all the heroin. And the old drug abuse law enforcement, or Dale, just before the DEA and the Kansas City Police Narcotics formed a task force back in, I want to say, 70, early 70, started working on these guys and started making small heroin buys, as you do, and started working their way up the chain and doing surveillances, and they eventually got a wiretap. Because Eddie Cox will file all kinds of motions. Once he gets convicted, he'll find all kinds of file all kinds of motions about this wiretap, and eventually gets part of the evidence thrown out. Now, it wasn't good enough to keep him out. He eventually got out again, but he was a great prison lawyer. And so these guys are—they're ruling the streets. They own what we call the East Side, which was an African American community east of Troost, south of. Truman Road and east of Truce out to about, oh, I want to say at that time, out to about 75th Street, maybe 63rd. And these guys, they had like out south, they had a couple of three guys that I never was familiar with because during that time I was a street policeman and I was working in and around the projects. And the guys for them that were kind of controlling the projects were the Denman brothers. Mario and I don't remember the other Ken, I think Denman. And then a guy named Aaron Gant had an organization. He had two or three relatives. So they were likely a crew under the Black Mafia. They also had the 31st Street gang was still going. A guy named Maynard Cooper ran in and they used them for enforcement activities. And these guys, they were murderous. They were vicious. If somebody tried to cheat them on the heroin or on the money, or they felt like somebody was getting in on their deal, incursion into their territory, they'd end up dead. I mean, these guys were bad. So as a result of these wiretaps, they also had a little bank robbery crew working for them. A couple of brothers named Hilton, and last name was Kelton. Had a couple of brothers, Jerry and Terry Kelton. The last one of them was still in the penitentiary for a series of bank robberies, and the other one died. Terry died, and I think Jerry's still up here at Leavenworth. I had a guy get hold of me. No, he wanted to talk to Jerry and try to tell the Kelton story, which they have a whole story in themselves. They cut a pretty wide swath as a couple of bank robbers in Kansas City. Chased after them myself. Almost caught Jerry one time and after a bank robbery. Probably a good thing I didn't. He was a killer. He probably would have killed me. But we had a little car chase, and he got away. Here's an interesting story about that. He ran into an apartment building. I don't know what happened to him in there. He had some people in there that he knew, but we ended up searching their apartment, and we couldn't find him in there. He was gone. But he dropped a whole pile of money from the bank robbery out in front of the apartment building, and we found out later that the postman was walking along about the time he ran in and saw the money and took the money and kept it. Some neighbor ratted him out, made a, dropped a dime on him, made a call, and we'd go see the postman, and he cops to it right away. <laughs> Some of the little stories on the streets. But the Black Mafia, we're going, we're going, this is a little later, we're going back to the 70s. I digressed. 
they run these wiretaps, they, they get this bank robbery crew, they get a bunch of search warrants, and they pop everybody. There was a shootout with Doc Dearborn, Al Lomax, who was a narcotics, Kansas City Police narcotics detective, had a shootout with him, got wounded in the leg. I don't know. They didn't shoot Doc Dearborn. He must have given up or something. I don't know exactly what happened down there. Al's gone, so I don't know exactly what happened on the details of that, but there was a shootout. Put them all in jail, all kinds of headlines about the Black Mafia and putting them in jail. But during this time, there was a politician, a Black politician named Leon Jordan. And here's where the Black Mafia again intersects with the mob and this Joe Centimiano. It's a hard name to pronounce. Leon Jordan had been a Kansas City, Missouri police officer and been promoted to a lieutenant had got a leave of absence, went to Liberia and helped organize a national police force over there, came back, worked on the PD for a little bit and realized that being a black man in the Kansas City Police Department in 1968-69, he was never going anywhere. To be a lieutenant, they made him a lieutenant, but then he gave him a small crew of black policemen in the black neighborhood, and he was never going any further than that. And he was a bright guy, and he had aspirations, so he quit and went into politics and had a political organization. Part of Freedom Incorporated helped found this Freedom Incorporated, and they would back certain black candidates. And if you got the approval of Freedom Incorporated, then whoever you were in this city, you were probably going to get elected because every black person that voted would vote for whoever Freedom Incorporated wanted you to vote for. So there was some, he had a confrontation with an Italian politician down at the state capitol. They wanted him to do something and he wouldn't do it. And it's reported that maybe even they had a physical altercation. We don't know. All of a sudden, Leon Jordan is out and the Green Duck Tavern, he had bought a tavern, was like a center for politicians and neighborhood people and drug dealers and everybody. And everybody went to the Green Duck. And one night, Leon Jordan walks out of the Green Duck to get in his brown Pontiac. And two men come running down the street with shotguns and blow him away. Well, there's like a couple of witnesses to this. <laughs> And within the next few months, the feds are going after a couple of guys that are connected to the Black Mafia. Not Leon Jordan, not Doc Dearborn or Eugene Richardson, but Maynard Cooper. There's a guy named Walter Frontebarger who was a drug addict and in this operation that caught a case at that time. And he dropped a dime on Maynard Cooper and another guy, another tough out of the 31st Street gang, who also we have seen after this over the years talking to Cork Savella down at the city market, a guy named Jimmy Willis. And he was a bad dude. He, he was one tough dude. And he was willing to testify against him. So they went in and they had the first trial against Maynard Cooper with Fronta Barger testifying and he had like 30 felonies or something and he got a not guilty and they just dropped charges on jimmy willis never did try him so they walked on that it's a pretty good idea that they had something to do with it the black mafia did but nobody could prove anything beyond that eventually they will eventually the story is going to come out but not till years and years later these guys all go away to prison well i mentioned in the projects. There's a guy named Aaron Gant, and Aaron Gant called him Junebug, and he was ambitious, shall we say. 
And he started lining people up and he created what became known as the Purple Capsule Gang because they always put their heroin in purple capsules. And he kind of branched out into cocaine because it was starting to come in and getting popular. And so he owned the projects, but he was vicious. And they caught him on like 20 some murders, they think, charged him with three and ended up convicting him of one said he and a guy named Alan Hawkins and a couple of these Denman brothers brought this whole thing down, but there's always somebody else to take up the slack. A guy named Sam Haley was a big rival of Aaron Gant at the time. And when Aaron Gant went down on those murders and Sam Haley was able to move in and expand his territory, which will eventually they go to war over the next two or three years. As a matter of fact, Sam Haley was a little bit scared of Aaron Gant because he caught a case and he had to go to the penitentiary and he asked the judge in open court to not put him in Missouri State Penitentiary, I believe the one down at Moberly maybe, or maybe at Jefferson City, not put him in that one because Aaron Gant was in that penitentiary and he feared for his life and I, they sent him out of state. He ends up getting out and kind of forgot all about whatever happened to Sam Haley. He was a well-known murderer and heroin dealer for a long time during these years and was in this ongoing battle with Aaron Gant. Aaron Gant goes away, 1985, I think. I have an interesting story about Aaron Gant's got this case for his Blue Capsule gang. In 78, he skips out on his bond, $25,000 bond. There's a local bondsman that's a heck of a character named Doug Sharp. Doug Sharp starts putting out money. As a matter of fact, one of his expenses was $300 to Sam Haley for information on Aaron Gann. So he's on the hook for $25,000. Finally, he finds him out in California and sends somebody out and get him set down and get him arrested and brought back. So then he goes in front of the judge and says, look, judge, I spent like $12,000 in man hours. I spent $9,000 in out-of-pocket expenses, which is where he laid out the expense, $300 to Sam Haley. I'll need to get that bond money back. I got him back for you. So they'd already like executed, if you will, on the bond. The state had already taken the $25,000 away from him. So they had refunded his bond money and he really kind of ended up breaking even. He still lost the money, but he spent out that money in expenses to get Aaron Gant back. So Aaron Gant goes away for a few years. Aaron Gant comes back out in 1983, gets home, goes to his mom's house, gets his brother and a woman of some kind and a couple other hangers on, and they all go to the Piccolo Club on 18th Street. He's not in there but about an hour, and some guy dressed all in black pays his $5 cover fee, walks in, and walks directly to Gant and has a gun, produces a gun, and shoots him three times in the head, turns around and walks back out. Aaron Gant is no more. Now, we don't know when that murder was never, ever solved. I would imagine he came back in with the idea that he was going to go back into business and be the king of the projects. And the project, for, I think they'd been torn down by now, and everything had changed. And by the 80s, cocaine had come in, and we were getting these L.A. boys bringing cocaine from Los Angeles. The Jamaicans had moved in with their cocaine outfits. And so Aaron Gant was a guy who's time had come and gone. So that's kind of the story. I was talking to a kid about a little bit. He had a relative who was one of these part of the black mafia, if you will. And he said that his uncle, whose name was, they called him Radio, 
I think his last name was Strother. They called him Radio, and Radio got back out of the penitentiary after about a three-year bit, and he was there when he came home. And somebody out of the Gantt operation brought him a briefcase full of money to get started again. So there was so much money. They were predicting, they estimated the black mafia at their peak was making $100,000 a day off the heroin trade. Now, that's a bit of a stretch, but they did make a lot of money. They really were responsible for, I think, the very first federal wiretap. I think they were responsible for the very first legal federal wiretap in Kansas City, the one on Savella at the trap at the social club that brought Nick Savella down. That came about the same time, maybe right after, but that was the FBI wiretap. It was the DEA or Dale, Drug Abuse Law Enforcement wiretap. It was really unheard of tapping a phone legally back in those days. And some of the other guys were real colorful characters that moved into the breach when Doc Dearburn and Eugene Richardson went down and Aaron Gant came up and then he went down. There's a guy named Red Strong who ended up converting to be a Muslim and took on a Muslim name. He had a house, a shooting gallery on a street called Prospect. It's kind of the main drag in the black community. He had a shooting gallery down there that was just, they'd be lined up there at night. I was working dog watch and, and I drove by there. It's like, what the heck? I mean, it was like Grand Central Station at two o'clock in the morning. I went by about six o'clock in the morning. There was a big trash bag out in front of this house. So I just went over and like kind of tore open to see what was in it. And it was filled with used hypodermic syringes. I would not want to have been the trash man. I hope they picked that up with gloves. I know they're pretty careful, especially if you're out in a community like that where there's drug houses and stuff around. So you have to be careful. Another guy that's worth mentioning that came up was pretty flamboyant, a guy named Monk Johnson. Monk Johnson was connected to the Kelton brothers. Kelton brothers are these two bank robbers. They also, the Kelton brothers had a cocaine organization going themselves based on after the demise of the black mafia or Doc Dearborn, Eugene Richardson and Aaron Gant. Then these Kelton brothers stepped in, had their own organization going on. They were bank robbers also, and then would get these little young kids to go out and rob banks. They'd set up the bank robbery, and they would provide them with the guns and the cars, and then sick them on a bank. And they actually ended up killing a man named a policeman named Warren Jackman in a bank robbery. He was working off duty there. So these were big time professional criminals, and and Terry was kind of more charismatic and the leader of the Terry and Jerry. Out of the penitentiary, Terry starts, he makes a connection with a guy, a mob associate named Junior Bradley, who had a ton of connections in all the penitentiaries. He would have been really good friends, would have known Eddie Cox really well. And a part of that kind of national subculture of federal penitentiary people, which there are a few that then they call somebody. If you're like, I know Junior, he had a guy, we were on a wire on him, and he had a father call him and say, my son's got some kind of a case. It wasn't anything that we'd ever heard of, but he's going up to Leavenworth. And he said, can you take, help take care of him? He said, yeah, I'll make some calls and, and somebody will meet him inside. I know when a guy named Gaetano Badalamente went in the penitentiary, why a guy that I know 
got a call from Junior Bradman and said, hey, Gaetano Badalamente, look for him. He's coming in. He doesn't speak English. Take care of him. Make sure he gets his commissary right. Make sure nobody messes with him, that people know who he is. And Gaetano Badalamente, he was like the Sicilian godfather in a way. He was the pizza connection boss. He was the guy that really set up and ran everything in that pizza connection, then fell for that and served out the rest of his life in the penitentiary. So Junior Bradley got some kind of a connection with Terry Kelton. And Terry was using Junior. Junior was investing money in Terry's operation through Terry's wife. She she ended up testifying. He would give her like a grocery, what we called a grocery bag, one of those big brown grocery bags full of cash. And then he would go out and buy heroin or buy cocaine, whichever it was, or he actually dealt with both. And his organization would then sell it and then he'd get the money back. He'd pay Junior back plus his kick. So in a way, Junior was not involved in the drug game other than he was investing money in it. And I'm sure really loan shark interest rates for the loan to make the bigger buys and keep everything flowing. Terry's still in the penitentiary up there at Leavenworth, like I said. I'm trying to think what else is going on today. I don't really know what's going on today. This Leon Jordan, when he got killed years later, I want to say back in around 2000, 2001, maybe it was even since then, it's more like 2007 or eight. A young guy who was the son of Koki Joe or Joe Centimiano, who had the liquor store down in Vine and had all the connections with the blacks. It was right down the road from Babyface Norris. That kid, I think he got hold of the Kansas City Star, a reporter or somebody. And anyhow, they ended up covering it big time. Let's go back to the story of Leon Jordan, the politician who was killed. If you remember, I talked about Joe Centimiano, who had a liquor store and was kind of a contact for the black gangs and the policy. Blacks always ran policy. Babyface was always part of the policy game. And he had the connections with them. His son came forward to a Kansas City Star reporter, and I want to say 2004, 2005, and said this had been weighing on his mind. He remembered just before the murder of Leon Jordan, he knew that his dad had something to do with this. He didn't know what. But he remembered, he knew Doc Dearborn. Doc Dearborn had come into the store a lot and was friendly with his dad. We knew him. The kid would talk to Doc Dearborn or Eugene Richardson or some of their people. So they were in and out of his store a lot for some reason. And he remembered his dad one night. There was some secret thing. And his dad gave Leon Jordan. And his dad gave Doc Dearborn a shotgun. And Leon Jordan was killed with a shotgun. And then after it was all over, he knew his dad had something to do with this, but he couldn't really articulate it. And he dropped some other names. They went back in. They opened this up. An interesting story that came out of that is whoever shot Leon Jordan left a 12-gauge Winchester pump shotgun laying on the ground, one of, one of the murder weapons. I think there was two shotguns used. Police took it in as evidence, of course, as you will. So when they reopened this case, they went to Kansas City Police Department and said, hey, where's that shotgun? The evidence, we want to reopen this case. We had a cold case squad by then. So they started looking into it. They looked in. They said, well, let's find the evidence. And I look at the evidence. It's in the property room. It's an unsolved murder, so they have to preserve all the evidence. <laughs> 
and the shotgun, they can't find it, but they find it was signed out to our supply unit. So they go to the supply unit and they find it in a police car because it was a typical Winchester shotgun that we use in our police cars. They took it back out of the police car, put it back in evidence because who knows, maybe they'll solve this thing or maybe they'll file a charge on somebody. There's no statute of limitations on murder. Plus, Leon Jordan, after he died, took on kind of a cult status in the black community as a dead politician that maybe the mob had something to do killing him. Maybe it was something to do with a black-white conflict down in Jefferson City at the state capitol or maybe even in the city. There was always suspicion of that, and it probably was some kind of a conflict. I don't think it really had anything to do with race. I think it had more to do with somebody doing not doing what somebody else wanted them to do. But anyhow, you just don't leave the murder weapon out in a police car driving around every day. <laughs> so that's kind of the story of the Black Mafia and some of the major black dope dealers that we've had in Kansas City over the years. When I first watched The Wire, I don't know how many of you guys watched The Wire. It was so realistic from my memory of those days. I couldn't even believe it. It was just, man, I mean, it, it was set a little after my time, it was set in a time when they had pagers and they were a little more sophisticated, but the whole, the makeup of somebody had the towers some of the high rises, somebody had the low rises, somebody had out in the neighborhood, somebody had the south side of town within the black community for the sale and distribution of heroin was exactly how it was set up. And then all these different people that were involved. And we had our own Omar, the guy that would go around and rob the drug dealers. If you remember, I mentioned something about the Denman brothers. They were connected to the Gants down the projects, and they're always in around. Well, they had a brother, I believe it was Ray Denman, and he was a bad dude. And he was going around robbing drug dealers. Well, in the end, he got caught. And here's what they found. It was out south. It was like, well, we, it was a safe house. It was a weight house is what it was. And a guy named Bernard Wolfskill, who was a longtime heroin addict and junkie and Booster just had been around forever. He was in the weight house with the younger guy who was running it. And, you know, whenever somebody had come need to be re-upped, why he would give it to him and then go on. It was in a primarily white neighborhood out in the suburbs. <laughs> the police get a call one day and they go to this weight house. The door's been kicked in. They go in and they find, I think, a woman and a man dead. They were shot in the head and murdered. Place was all torn apart, but there was another guy laying there on the floor that was groaning. They looked down, and they saw one of the more macabre scenes that you might ever see as a police officer. He had a knife stuck clear through his throat and pinned him into the wood floor. And Bernard Wolfskill was this tough old junkie laying there squirming with that knife pinning him down to the floor. And they pull the knife out and send him off to the hospital and patch him up and goes back out and ends up dying a natural death a few years later. So that's some of the many stories of the streets of black mafia and black narcotics in Kansas City. I've got one of my good, solid supporters here in Kansas City who's been after me. Greg, you know who you are, has been after me to do something on these guys. I get up into John Gotti and Al Capone and all these national mob figures, but we've got our own little pieces of action here in Kansas City. And I did the whole Kansas City mob war, did a movie on it also, and the skim. So Cosa Nostra family was all involved in that. But our Black Mafia, which we had this Black Mafia family that coordinated with the Italian Mafia for a long time. 
after cocaine hit, the Jamaicans came in. It all went to hell. It's so different out there now. There's no organization to it except for individual different drug organizations and people are out ripping each other off. And I mean, there's so many murders behind these dope deals anymore. I don't even know. I asked a young policeman once, I said, well, who is the drug kingpin in the black community today? But he didn't know. He didn't have any idea. And I don't know. It's different than it used to be. It was a lot more fun and seemed like a lot more genteel back in the old days. Although there was a lot of murders, <laughs> but we knew who was who and we knew who were the kingpins and what they were doing and had some shot at taking them down. Anyhow, I like to ride motorcycles, so watch out for motorcycles when you're out there on the streets. And I know that you know that if you have a problem with PTSD or a friend or relative and they were in the service, go to the website of the VA and get that hotline. So like and subscribe. And if you look at my YouTube subscribers, I just, I went crazy over the last, ever since I started doing shorts and I went crazy. I mean, they just shot up, but I like people listen to the audio podcast too. Thanks a lot, guys.